HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. All right, so we're here at the newly founded Heritage Radio Network, and we're very excited to have farmer Craig Good from Good Farms in Oldsburg, Kansas with us. And we've got about 20 vital questions for our farmers uh, that we answer every week on the Farm Report, and this is our second show. And we're excited to have the master of the Duroc pork, whose tagline is Duroc's Duroc. So, Craig, let's start our questions with, um, with our first and very important question. What is the history of your land? Well, Lorenzo, um, our, the land that, that Amy and I operate and, uh, here and farm and raise our pigs and cattle on and raise crops um, is uh, at Oldsburg, Kansas. And Oldsburg actually is a Swedish community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, actually, we aren't Swedish. We're German descent mostly, but uh, uh, Swedish community primarily. And um, the land that we operate on now, um, actually, uh, my father purchased uh, mm. at least the first uh, first part of it in 1964. Okay. So we've had it, I guess, uh, about 45 years. And uh, prior to that, um, it was uh, owned by another man and, and his family, and uh, they they also raised cattle and hogs and crops on the land at that time as well. So, actually, our our history goes back to 1964 with this particular land that we're on. And you're upholding a tradition of farming on this land, correct? Yes, that's correct. It's always been in, uh, in, far- in the farming, and uh, we, uh, we, uh, our goal was to keep it that way. Okay. And our next question is something really close to, to, to our heart here at Heritage. Why are farming and farmers important to this country, do you think? Okay, well, I, I think... I think farming, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, farmers feed the world, and um, and I think you know that it's it is really uh, a pretty amazing thing when you think about it that that uh, such a small percentage of our people uh, that farm uh, feed feed so much of the world. I think it's I'm not sure exact figures, but somewhere around two percent uh, uh, farm, and uh, they feed uh, the other ninety percent. So. Ninety-eight percent. So um, I'm not sure those figures are exact, but that's that's uh, the part of it. And, and I, I think farmers, uh, I think in general, I think farmers have a, a, a real sense of responsibility to feed the world mm-hmm. and to take and be caretakers and stewards of the land. And I think that's a very, very much important to most people and farmers. And there there are exceptions that people sometimes abuse abuse that, but but not very often. I think in general, most farmers 
realize the importance of that, and they really they really want to to maintain their land and, and to uh, to do it in uh, in an ecologically sound way. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, another thing about farmers, I think, uh, you know, probably our most important crop is our children. Uh-huh. And, and you know, uh, I think over the years, you know, I think. Uh, you know, our children that we've contributed to society to, you know, to go out in the world and I think have a good, strong work ethic and, and a very, uh, they're very ethical and honest people. And I think that's a real important contribution that uh, most of us in agriculture uh, feel strongly about. So it's a philosophically sound practice and a practically necessary one. Yes, we, we feel like so too. And, you know, we are really are, you know, down through history, uh, you know, we're an agrarian society, and, and, uh, and uh, our background, uh, you know, is, is farming uh, for our particular family, my wife's family, for generations and generations, and, and uh, we think that that's really important, but there's just a fewer and fewer people have contact with agriculture, and, and I think it's uh, a real uh, high calling for us, and we feel a lot of responsibility to take care of, of what we've got and do a great job with what we do have. Okay. And my next question is a good one. If you could write one farm issue into law, which would it be? Well, that's a tough question, Lorenzo. Um, but, you know, I, I, guess, um, I guess most of us on the farm are fairly independent sorts. Um, and I guess uh, my answer to that would be, you know, um, I think that in, by and large uh, most of us uh, do a great job with, with what we do here in agriculture. And, and I think that... Um, uh, uh, more laws uh, sometimes uh, are not necessarily needed, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion maybe sometimes less is more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are going to be some sometimes that there are some protections that need to be in the law, but I really, I really, my personal philosophy is I don't, I don't think we need any more laws. I think we've probably got enough right now. Okay. Okay. Um. <clears throat> Which members of your production chain do you interact with most, and which are most important to your survival? Well, you know, there's a lot, there's a whole chain of events that, uh, you know, that, that take, that need to happen from the time a product is raised, you know, through the time the consumer finally gets that and, and it's enjoyed at the dinner table. And, and you know, that, that series of events... Uh, you know, if someone along the line messes up that series of events, mm-hmm. then it spoils the end product, and that sure. also includes the, the final preparation uh, or the person cooking that product. And, sure. But I'd say to us personally, uh, quite honestly, um, the production chain, um, Heritage Foods, uh, is a very vital part of that for us because uh, they're very important to us because uh, if it wasn't for them, it would be quite difficult for us to be doing what we're doing today uh, with our swine business. Well, thanks for that plug. Too kind. Um, what is the DNA that makes up the foundation for your food? Well, that that's a tough question. It's, it's kind of a difficult one, but um, I I guess when I think of that, I guess the first thing that comes into mind is, is our do-rock pigs. And um, to think back, you know, back, uh, the do-rock breed is an old breed. Uh, actually, not terribly old, but it's an American breed, actually. Um, was developed here in the United States in the 18, you know, prior to 1860, but officially more in the 1860s. And and so um, to think back of all the the DNA and the genetics goes back, you know, to to its origins. 
um, mm-hmm. it's kind of a neat thought. And uh, sure. so that's kind of what it means to me is in these pigs that I have today, you know, they're made up of, of pigs that have, you know, uh, for generations ago and, and a lot of animal breeders, uh, people that have had responsibility to uphold and maintain the breed, uh, you know, have brought it to this point. Sure, it enriches the spiritual value of your food if you keep if you keep these things in mind. Now say that again, please. Well, it enriches it enriches the value of your food. Exactly. Yeah, to to know that heritage and where it came from and and that it that it has been developed here and then there's a lot of been a lot of folks uh, uh, gone into making uh, our food what it is and uh, um, we we've we've really uh, we've really tried to maintain and uphold that. Okay. And on to the next question. What taste profiles are unique to the foods you raise? Well, you know, uh, you know, taste profiles are, are um, um, I think, something that what we've tried to do with our Duroc pigs is we've tried to um, try to do by, by um, selection uh, of animals that we feel like we, we've, we've done some... Uh, uh, Experimenting with animals that of different lines because there's different lines of the do rocks that are available, and we tried to find the ones that we feel like are are uh, ones that have really good uh, eating qualities and food quality, and uh, we've also tried to experiment some with uh, different diets, uh, different things that we might feed our pigs that are still healthy for the pig but might influence the the, the flavor of the food, and uh, that's been really fun. It's been been kind of a, a an interesting thing we've done some fruit fed pigs and and heritage foods has helped us with that and uh, it's been something that's been kind of rewarding to try those different things to see what it might um, have what effect it might have and we've also tried to to increase the marbling or the okay. intermuscular fat of those of our pork and hopefully raise the uh, you know the taste and the and the eating experience for for our pork okay and what would you say is the five or ten year plan of good farms well, you know, um, that's kind of hard to know. We, we, but we, we do have a plan, but we, we uh, um, you know, economic times change and things mm-hmm. change as we go, and sometimes we have to alter our plan. But my wife and I, you know, uh, I'm 56 years old now, and uh, we really enjoy what we're doing, and we like, mm-hmm. we like where we are, and we want to continue doing what we are. And so that shows. Um, and we, 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 don't, we didn't get into the business to... You know, if we go, if we grew and expanded very much, we and then we have to hire more help, mm-hmm. and that isn't our goal. We, you know, our goal was to, you know, do do a lot of it ourselves. We're mm-hmm. very much hands-on people, and um, you know, if you get too large, you became become it's not so much farming or or, or pork production as it is managing people, mm-hmm. and that isn't what I want to do. I want to I want to take care of our pigs and our livestock. And that's that's what I'm trained to do, and that's what we feel we do best. Hmm. Good answer. Um, how will how will changing global weather patterns affect the food you grow? Well, um, you know, I think the the weather patterns, you know, uh, history would show us, uh, tell us, I think that throughout time, you know, uh, I think the weather patterns have constantly changed over time, and I mm-hmm. think humans. Um, and farmers uh, have had to adapt and to, to change with whatever the weather throws at us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, we'll adapt, we'll change no matter what the pattern may be. Um, and I, I'm sure uh, um, that we'll, you know, through uh, 
through knowledge and uh, through experience, uh, we, we learn to adapt to those things. And hopefully that the patterns aren't so wild and so extreme that it becomes more difficult. But um, over history has, has showed us, shown us that uh, we can adapt and we can change the new, new, new weather patterns. Okay. Um, let's see. Because of your particular locale or trade, what's the secret to which only you have? What's a, what's, a, what's a farming secret that you consider a good farm's specialty? Well, gosh, I, you know, I guess if I told you my secret, it wouldn't be a secret right. anymore. Right. But, but no, uh, I think, I think um, you know, I think one thing that we, you know, that, that one philosophy we've had is that, you know, you've got to have a created advantage. I had a professor in college told me one time that when you're in production agriculture, you have to have a, a created advantage. Uh-huh. And that created advantage is something that you do that's a little bit different or better than sure. most, most people that's in, in, in your trade. And so, you know, I feel like that um, that's kind of what we've, we try to do. We try to wake up every morning and do as great a job as we can with, with what we've got. Um, some days are better than others, of course. But um, we, we, we try to get up and just, it's not any one or two big things that you do right or wrong. It's a lot of little things that we try mm-hmm. to do every day that are the secret, especially with livestock. There's so many little things that you have to do to provide for their welfare, their well-being, and for, uh, for our business to be successful. Mm-hmm. So what about your farm, if anything, keeps you up at night? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Where to start? Really, you know, yeah, really, we, that's one thing when, when you, we, we put in a good hard day's work and most of the time hardly ever do you have trouble sleeping at night, but there are times, <laughs> you know, what, when you, when you go to bed and I might wake up at night and, and I guess probably the things that, um, that keep me awake the most would be, um, two things and most of them are weather related. You know, when mm-hmm. you have a crop and you've got all the expense in the crop and it doesn't rain and you wake up and they're forecast for rain, you get up and I find myself going from window to a window in the house and seeing, boy, is it lightning over there? Is there a storm coming? Will we get rain? And that's one thing. And then the other thing is, is sometimes when we have bad weather, uh, particularly with our livestock, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, I wake up and and I'm concerned that, you know, is everything taken care of adequately? Uh, I, I feel bad sometimes because the animals you know, I have to go through some, some weather that's difficult, but hopefully most of the time we have a warning and we can provide for them and be prepared for that tough weather sometimes when it does come. But it always worries you whether the, whether the animals are, 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 are suffering or whether, they're, whether the, the weather is, is being hard on them for that, uh, that particular night. Sure, sure. Let's try to squeeze in two more questions in our three minutes. How does technology hurt or help your farm, would you say? Well, technology um, is something that I think over time has is, is helped our farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, because I think, you know, farming, you know, the, the only way that farming uh, farmers have, have been able to uh, survive economically over the years, um, because basically a lot of the prices that we've received for our products uh, haven't changed that greatly over the years. And so we've had to become more efficient and raise those products uh, efficiently and for lower cost, and so you know um, that's that's how it's helped us. Uh, one thing, 
in particular, um, uh, an example with our pigs is some of the vaccines that have developed um, through technology, I think, have really helped our pigs because it decreases their suffering and, and, and illness on the farm because we're able to prevent some of the illnesses that have been devastating to the hog business over the years. And so I think that in that way it's helped us. Uh, um, the, the negative side is, I guess, is that through technology, you know, and because we've had to become more efficient, you know, sometimes it's driven the industry to get larger and larger. And that isn't our personality. We, my wife and I, Amy, we've tried to stay small and to try to do a very good job of what we do have. And uh, so we, we, we've resisted trying to get big, and that's, that's not our goal. Well, thanks so much, Craig, for these answers. It was certainly an enlightening interview. Um, so, again, that was Craig Good of Good Farms in Oldsburg, Kansas, the famous breeder of Duroc pigs. And um, we were very happy to have him here on the Heritage Radio Network and on the Farm Report, which we hope will become an archive for the reflections and opinions of America's leading farmers. And we hope you'll tune in soon again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Craig. We hope we'll have your voice on here many times to come. Hi, welcome to the Heritage Radio Network. It's Easter Sunday, and we're broadcasting from two green shipping containers at the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick. And we are here with farmer Chris Wilson from Clover Creek Farm in Northeast Tennessee. She is the breeder of the famous Katahdin lamb, and we can't think of a better time than Easter Sunday to converse with one of America's great lamb farmers. So, Chris, um, we understand that you're getting a tornado there today. Yes, that's correct. We have a warning. We're having some pretty strong storms. Okay. And how does how does inclement weather affect you and your farm and your animals? Well, of course, you always worry, you know, if there's a storm. The sheep will tend to want to sh- seek shelter under trees or near buildings. So uh, you always worry that, you know, that it might be bad and a tree fall on them or They'd be struck by lightning, but thank the good Lord that's never happened to us. We're pretty well protected in these mountains from tornadoes. We will sometimes have some pretty strong winds, but it's not likely that we'll have a, you know, a lot of damage. Well, we certainly hope not. Right. So tell us a little bit about the history of your land. Well, we've been here on this farm for... About the last 18 years, we were pretty fortunate in the fact that we could find a piece of property this size where we're at because most of the farms have already been cut up into subdivisions. And this farm had been in the same family for the past seven generations. But like a lot of family farms here, the children no longer wanted to farm and their parents were too old. You know, they were ready to retire, so they decided to sell half of the farm. So we were able to buy it and keep it in in one chunk. So, it, uh, so clearly your family understands 
the importance of farming. Um, and so why, why do you think farming and farmers are important? Well, of course, without farms and farmers, you know, I don't know what we would eat. Uh, a lot of people, I think, now don't really realize where their food comes from, you know. You go to a grocery store and pick it off of a shelf, but what went into it before it got there. So without the farms and the farmers, there wouldn't be anything to buy. Well, that's certainly what Heritage Foods is trying to do, is trying to connect its producers to the consumers of that food. Um, well, let, me, let me ask you, if you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? Well... Of course, a lot of people have a lot of concerns about farms now, but I think really if everybody that was involved in the making of the laws, from the Oval Office to the local courthouse, if they had to spend some time on a farm before they could take that office and really be on a farm, not on a tour bus going by a farm, they might have a bigger appreciation for farms and for the people that operate those farms, keep things going. I mean, a lot of people that make the laws now are not really connected to the farm. They don't have that much of an understanding as to what day-to-day life is like for a farmer. So of all the people in this chain, from production to legislation to consumption, which do you interact with most, and which are most important to your survival? I'm not sure that I heard that question good. So, so of all of all the participants in this in this chain, from producers to legislators to consumers, which are the most important? Which do you interact with most, and which matter most to your survival? Well, of course, my my customers would matter most to my survival. <laughs> you know, if they don't buy what I produce then, you know, I'm going to go out of business real quick. So, um, you know, there's a lot of lot of different people that you interact with from the time these lambs are born until the time they go to somebody's table. So I'm not going to say that any one is any more important than the other. They're all ultimately very important. But I guess the final say-so is the customer, you know if they're happy with what I'm producing for them. Well, I'm sure that your Katahdin lambs have ended up on a lot of tables on this Easter Sunday. Can you tell us a little bit about the food pro- or the taste profiles unique to the lambs you raise? Sure. Uh, the Katahdin breed is a higher breed in that they don't produce wool. They're not shorn for their wool. Uh, they're only for meat production. So by not having that wool... They don't really carry as much of a lamby taste uh, that would maybe come from the production of that wool. They're a little bit milder in flavor. And then because these lambs are grass-fed and grass-finished, they will still have a milder taste. So the, the fact that they spend all their life on grass before they do are harvested, I think gives them a milder flavor and certainly a healthier aspect to the meat. Okay. Well, since I'm sure people want to enjoy your katanas for many years to come, what would you say is the five or ten year plan of your farm? Well, I hope to be here just like I am now, in five years, ten years, and if I don't fall over from old age, 
you know, as long as I can go, I'll I'll keep raising lambs as long as as people like Heritage keep promoting them for me and selling them for me. Do you foresee yourself engaging in in new or different practices in the next five or ten years, or do you th- do you think you're going to keep raising the lamb in the same manner that you have? I would hope to keep raising it in the same manner. So you're a traditionalist. A traditionalist, yes. Um, how would how will global weather patterns affect the lamb? You think, and the well, manner in which you raise them. Uh, certainly, it affects us. We are just coming out. I hope coming out of a three-year drought, which certainly had a big impact on us. Uh, it's hard to to graze when you don't have any grass. So, you know the the hay that was harvested in the spring was used all through the summer to feed before we got rain again. So it's it certainly affected us. Mm-hmm. And um, do you think do you think that these global weather patterns will continue to affect affect the land? I'm, I'm sure that they will to a certain extent. Uh, I mean, the weather has always affected farmers, but it's the one thing that we have no control over. So That's we've right. just had to adapt and and try to survive with it. Okay, so when nature puts these obstacles before you, what tools do you find most useful in overcoming them? Well, of course, there's you have lots of resources. Soil conservation, uh, you know, the local extension agents, the farm service agency, they're all, you know, useful tools to help you to manage the problems that you're having. Okay. And uh, because of the particularities of your locale or trade, what's the secret that you've used to make these lambs taste so good? Well, how are the lambs connected to the land they're grown on? In other words, as well. I'm I'm not sure I understood the last part of your question. So, what's one of the secrets that you use to make the katahdins taste the way they do? Well, I think. Uh, I don't really think it's a big secret. It's more of a natural process. Uh, the lambs stay with their mothers. They stay in a group, in their family group. I think they they taste better because they're humanely raised. They're under very low stress conditions. Uh, I just think it's the way they were meant to be raised naturally. Okay, and how do you think raising an animal humanely actually affects the taste of the final product when it reaches the consumer's dish? Oh, I'm sure it does. There's been numerous studies to show that if an animal is excited or uh, under a lot of stress, that the meat is not going to be nearly as good. You know, if they are raised in a low-stress, humane handling situation, it... uh, it shows through toward the end product. Okay. And um, what about your farm, if anything, keeps you up at night? Well, of course, you always worry about things, you know. Uh, I guess during lambing season is probably the only time I'm really up at night. I worry about the lambs and making sure that, uh, you know, they're okay. But, you know, farming is a, is a way of life. And you just kind of get used to that. Okay. 
And uh, how does technology hurt or help your farm? And do you embrace technology? And what do you think will be some of the ways in which technology will affect the way you, you raise the Katahdins? Well, of course, technology, um, I think it's helpful. I use a lot of resources, uh, soil sampling, you know, to see how the fertility of the soil is, testing my hay to make sure what the protein content is and the nutritional value. Without technology, I certainly couldn't do that. Uh, and just like marketing, I mean, through the folks at Heritage, I've been able to sell my lambs coast to coast, which normally I could not have done. You know, I was uh, just selling locally, so I certainly embrace technology. I think it's a, a wonderful thing. So speaking of selling your lambs coast to coast, who would you say are your biggest buyers? Who are your top buyers? Well, I hope Heritage is going to be my biggest buyer, you know. Uh, I sell mostly locally, you know. Uh, like I said, within a 100-mile radius. You know, the people people get to know me, and I get to know them. You know, it's a rarity today to have a farmer so close to the people consuming her product. That's true. That's true, and it, I think it's... Uh, it's missed, you know, and it's a shame that most people don't have the opportunity to know the people that raise their food, to know how it's raised and where it comes from. Well, that's certainly one of the missions that Heritage Foods is is set on accomplishing. What What's the maximum size for your model? Well, probably the size I'm at right now. I'm running about 130 ewes and on 50 acres. To be able to, my my goal is to be able to run them on grass 11 months out of the year. Uh, and that's probably my maximum size. Okay. And uh, wh- what do you think, what in your opinion is American food? Well, I think American food is safe food. Uh, food that you can have confidence in eating to know that it's healthy and it's safe to eat. And speaking of safety, do your lamb ever run into any problems with wildlife in your area? What interaction do the Katahdins have with with local wildlife? Well, I have uh, livestock guardian dogs that live with my sheep. So we have coyotes here, uh, and we have foxes and bobcats and so forth that could be a threat to the lambs. But because the dogs live with the sheep or born with the sheep and become part of the flock, I don't have any problems, you know, with the wildlife. Uh, I don't have anything against wildlife. I love them. I just want to see them outside of my fence. <laughs> and the dogs seem to, to make, make that happen. Uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're gentle giants. They, they just patrol the fence and keep anything out that, would harm the lambs. And how many, do, would you say that you, how many lambs get harmed a year, if any, on your farm? I'm sorry, could you repeat how that? Many, how many lambs get harmed a year, if any, on your farm? Uh, none are harmed. None are harmed. No, I have never lost a lamb to a predator. What, what have you lost lambs to? Well, of course, you, you have lambs that... Uh, come to certain things like pneumonia, you know, but I normally do not have great losses. You know, it's rare to lose a lamb. 
And what's the highest high and the lowest low you've ever had on a farm? Has there ever been a lamb you've been particular, a group of lambs that you've particularly been particularly attached to? Well, yeah, of course, there's always lambs you get attached to. Uh, it's not unusual to bring one in the house and keep it for some time. You know, if it's small and delicate, so it's a it's a real joey to see that lamb grow up. You know, uh, probably the lowest thing was was during the periods of drought when, you know, it was, you weren't sure if you were going to be able to make it. And that's probably one of the saddest things, to think that you might have to give it up. Mm-hmm. And if you had to relocate your farm, where would you go? I'm not sure I would go anywhere, you know. I'd, if I had to relocate, if somebody came to me today and said, you've got to give this up and move, I'm not sure I could do that. No, I just couldn't. I love these mountains of East Tennessee. I was born here, have never lived anyplace else, and I don't think I'd ever want to live anyplace else. Mm-hmm. And how was your season this year? Now that we appro- now that we're on on Easter Sunday here, what better time to ask you how your season went? Now that the fruits of your labor are being enjoyed. Can you repeat that? How was your season this year? And because I, I figured no better time than Easter Sunday when the fruits of so much labor are being enjoyed, probably right as we speak, than to ask you how your season went. Oh, my season went well. It went really well. We had lots and lots and lots of lambs born this year. We've had uh, way over 200 lambs and, and no losses. And it's, it's just been a really good season. Okay. Well, we'd like to thank you so much for being with us, Chris. This was certainly a very apropos discussion here on Easter Sunday, and we hope to have you here for many, many other interviews. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and once again, I'd like to just say how much I appreciate Heritage and and what they're doing to help small producers like myself. Well, that's very nice. We're just trying to relay the passion that you have for your food onto the consumer.